one can be beguiled into thinking that writing is is um safe uh, a safe occupation mm -hmm. where you sit at home you create little stories you put them out and people smile or don't smile or whatever it is you shock them or frighten them or surprise them mm -hmm. and it remains in some way um wrapped up in in something um safe and protective but theater is not safe Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Find Your Light, the podcast that helps women plus in theater take center stage in lives they love. I am your host, Emily Stamets. My guest today is pretty phenomenal, and it's very possible that you have never heard of her, so I'm really happy to be able to introduce her to you. Her name is Manjula Padmanabhan. She's an author, a playwright, and a cartoonist. She's actually been cartooning for way longer than she's been writing plays, which I think is really cool. Her play, Harvest, won the 1997 Onassis Award for Theater. She has a weekly comic strip, Sukiyaki, which appears in Business line in India. Her two most recent novels, Escape and The Island of Lost Girls, are set in a brutal future world. She lives in the U.S. and also has a home in New Delhi. And I do need to put a content warning on this episode today because much of Manjula's work um, touches on sexual violence in India as a it's her, the social issues that she has taken up the mantle of. So if hearing a little bit about that is going to be disturbing to you, please skip this episode and uh, keep yourself safe and do what you need to do to protect your energy and protect your spirit. All right. Without any further ado, here is Manjula Padmanabhan. Tell us about, I know this is a big question because you've had uh, an incredible full life um, with many accolades to your name. But how did you, let's talk, let's focus on the theater journey. How did you get started in the theater? Um, how did you get from that day where you started to where you are now? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's, um, it's something that I've often described because there's a very particular um, moment. <laughs> and it came along um, because I was um, afraid to get to it as quickly as I can. Um, a friend with whom I was having a, a neutral conversation about life and times began to tell me about uh, an, a really horrifying experience she'd had as part of a group who all witnessed a gang rape at a distance. At, it was the, the rape was taking place at a distance. Okay. Now, when she was telling me this, you know, we, we both, we both, obviously, we both were very disturbed by what she was saying. But when I came to trying to process what I could do, what I felt I had to do with this story, um, and I worked as a journalist and cartoonist, at, I was at that time working as a journalist and cartoonist, uh, I went to two or three editors of newspapers to say, you know, I've heard this really disturbing story. And they all said to me, um, it could not be a news story because there were the 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 events had taken place a year earlier. Um, the people who were witness would not talk, and um, there seemed to be there seemed to be no hooks, journalistic hooks that could be 
applied to the story. So I just had a story. And um, I, I do, you know, I, I write as, uh, um, I write fiction. And um, one of my editors said, why don't you just write a short story and we can publish it? But obviously, obviously that wouldn't do. And it was one friend who said, why don't you write a play? She said it, I think she said it as, um, as a way of getting me beyond this moment. And I thought, well, um, a play, you know, like, well, oh, you know, I had not written a play before. And um, at that moment, it didn't seem to be at, at all difficult to imagine writing a play on, on a very dramatic, about a very dramatic situation. So I, I started out in that direction without any real notion. And I'll, I will now cut to, after I had written the play, and I called it Lights Out. Uh, I showed it around to friends. It was, I had friends who uh, ha had a theater company and friends who were in the media. There was much, in, there was an interest in it. And I, I was very fortunate in that it got, it very quickly got um, attention from, from friends who were in the business one way or the other. But I remember, what I remember most was the first moment after I had seen um, a reading. So I attended a reading and I hadn't been to the rehearsals. You know, I gave them the script. We agreed it would be interesting to have a reading and it was a rehearsed reading. And the director, who's a very good friend of mine, invited me to the reading without without suggesting that I should come to rehearsals, you know. So I went to it as an audience member. I, I really, you know, I, I had published um, a lot, a great deal in the newspapers. I was very used to being published and for my work to appear in a, in a medium that went to, you know, thousands of uh, anonymous readers. But this, where... Uh, at the end of the play, which was it, it's a it's a disturbing play, and it ends it ends in an unfulfilling uh, manner because it doesn't give the audience a chance to. There's nothing to clap about, so you you can't. You end the play and you cannot clap because of where you reach at the end of the play, and uh, everyone was very shocked, and the director then turned to me and I was in the audience saying, and we have the playwright. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, my sister was, one of my sisters was present and, uh, at, the, at the reading. She said, I looked like an owl that had been caught in the headlights. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was completely unprepared for, for being the source of this. Mm -hmm. of this discomfort that I caused a whole, um, you know, like 50 people. <laughs> and it was, uh, I'm laughing now, but I remember this, this sense of, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I, I'm not af afraid of public speaking. I'm not, I'm very, I'm very um, uh, used to being in a public space. It's just the way I grew up. So, I, it was for me. This was very unfamiliar. The sense of being suddenly the only 
the single point of reference for a social experience. That was not something I was used to at all. Yeah. And it was, it was at once a sense of the uh, um, solitude of the writer, the sense that you and you alone are responsible for this. Mm-hmm. Nobody else. Whatever, whatever fed into my, uh, my writing of the piece, whatever the experience is, I chose to do it. And I chose to put my name out there associated with this experience. And for those people who, were, who had been shaken by it, uh, they had an immediate <laughs> uh, object of, uh, uh, of attention to pour their, you know, their feelings on. It was, it was a, a very humbling moment. So did you do a talk back and you had time to chat with the audience there was, afterwards? There was time. Yes, there okay. was time. People, but, Ooh. but I think everyone knew that I was, <laughs> I was looking and behaving as shocked as they were <laughs> um, <laughs> because I hadn't, I, I really hadn't anticip- anticipated this. Mm-hmm. And I, I would guess uh, that the way I have been socialized, I grew up um, in in a very socially uh, sophisticated way, in the sense that um, my family and I were were we lived in in a way that there was a great deal of social um, uh, interaction with with strangers, with others. We were as a family, we were very often. Um, entertaining large numbers of people. And from the time I was a very small child, I was very used to being brought out in public with, I mean, at parties Mm -hmm. and expected to talk um, uh, socially and in a, in a pleasant way. I was very used to all of that. This was very different Mm -hmm. because this was not being sociable. This was, uh, uh, being artistic or creative in a way that I was completely unfamiliar with, mm-hmm. not as me personally. And um, it was, it was um, uh, an introduction to that very other world of um, uh, literary activity, because again, one can, one can be beguiled into thinking that writing is, is, um, safe, uh, a safe occupation where you sit at home, you create little stories, you put them out and people smile or don't smile or whatever it is, you shock them or frighten them or surprise them. Mm -hmm. And it remains in some way um, wrapped up in in something um, safe and protective. But theater is not safe. Theater is is that form of art, which is Mm -hmm. uh, of its nature not safe. People come, people actually pay to be moved, to be angered, to be taken out of themselves, and also to be brought back. As it happens, this particular play does not allow you to come back. It it takes you out of your familiar space and it leaves you there. (laughs) I have had theater experiences like that where shows have left me dumbstruck at the end. And I've had to just sit there for a minute. Before and yeah. everyone around me is clapping and you know standing ovations and whatever and I've just been like completely emotionally 
I just needed more time to process it. I've had that experience. And those are some of my favorite experiences. (laughs) So thank you for creating that for the people. I mean, like you said, we show up because we want to be moved. We want to be changed in some way. Right. And those experiences are what allow us to, to change, right? To have the catharsis or to uh, experience a new life. Um, a very, very long time ago, I uh, came to realize that uh, as a creative person, of course, you have to make some effort to engage with the exterior world. It's not just interior. <laughs> Whether we want to or not, yes. <laughs> but, but that I am singularly bad at that. And, and because I'm bad at that, I had to take, um, I had to make certain decisions about <clears throat> what I could afford to not do. That is, um, could I afford to be as unconcerned about public relations as in fact I am? And um, what were, was I willing to accept the consequences? And the consequences are that um, I am in the way that I said to you when we first spoke on the phone, I'm obscure. And, and yet, of course, I'm, I mean, I'm aware that I have a very unusual obscurity because of course I'm published and I'm, I'm ex, you know, I, I don't find that surprising. And I, I, uh, I don't find it surprising because I also know that I'm unusual. I'm unusual because most people in my position, that is, as um, a playwright who is not, who's very rarely performed um, anywhere, uh, I have remained in business. All of this is because, I mean, a lot of this is because in 1986, uh, uh, I wrote a play called Harvest. Mm-hmm. And I, I wrote the play with the intention of sending it for a competition I've heard about in. Um, in a very small Australian theater magazine. Again, this is there's a long story behind all this, but I will not go. I just happened to see a tiny announcement about um, a Greek uh, theater prize, and there was a huge um, sum uh, associated with the prize. They were offering two hundred fifty thousand dollars for wow. the prize. And I can cut to the chase and say, I won that for this play called Harvest. And I wrote Harvest in 96. I, um, and I, I had to send it in by, the, by June of 96. And in July of 97, this play won that prize. And I do, I do believe, if not for Harvest, I would remain a tiny footnote in the distance. But I had continued because, as I said, I had, by 96, by the time I wrote Harvest, I had realized that um, my early success, in quotation marks, success with Lights Out, because Lights Out got a lot of attention. But it's not that it was performed by lots of people or that it's just that it got a lot of attention. And um, there was an interest in it. But it did languish as a, oh, well, you know, that's an interesting play, but yeah, it's, it's one of those small um, uh, idealistic plays. And 
it, it's not the kind of play that would have, uh, you know, a, a long run anywhere. It might be performed in one or two places. Okay. But I had not stopped writing plays. So I had continued to write plays, um, which didn't get performed. Uh, and it's just one other feature of my personality that I, I don't get um, uh, dismayed by things that go wrong. I just, I just tell myself, oh, you know, that's, that's a minor, minor issue. Yeah. And I just need to keep going. I was going to ask how you uh, got up the courage or the confidence to, um, to write the play and apply for that award. Because there's a lot of people who see those sorts of opportunities and go, oh, it could never be me, or I'm not good enough, or it's too much work, or... Yeah, well, you know, it's just, uh, my family will tell you that from a very early age, my approach is, of course that could be me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I can't, I can't explain that. I can't explain why I'm confident. It's not because I'm especially brilliant. I'm not. I, I often, I often make the point, I am the hope for all those people who think of themselves, who know that they are ordinary or, you know, have ordinary. Uh, my point is ordinary skills are all that we need. You don't oh need special skills. That's amazing. Can I get that tattooed on my body somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> That's so fantastic. That's the point I like to make is I'm not unusual. Mm -hmm. I'm not a genius. I'm often called that, but I'm not. I'm often called that. This is all after the effect. It's after harvest, after I have, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, harvest obviously got me a lot of attention right. and a lot of, uh, you know, there's a kind of negative attention. There's a shadow attention that follows any kind of success. So there was a lot of resentment and as well, I mean, quiet because I, I don't socialize. So it's not, it's not as if I went out into the world and suddenly there were flashbacks. No, because I didn't do that. And the harvest happened when I was in my mid forties. I was not, I was not, um, I was amazed and grateful that this had happened. Uh, but I didn't imagine that it meant that my life was suddenly, you know, suddenly going to be a radiant star. I didn't want that by the mid forties. I didn't want that. I, People ask me, what are you going to do with the money? No one wanted to know about the play. They just wanted to know about the money. Mm -hmm. That was such, um, and again, I, I, was not, I, was, I was not surprised that that's how people react. Um, but when, when people wanted to know, what is I going to do? You know, was I going to buy uh, fancy cars and properties all over the world? Of course not. <laughs> because it's not that much money. Um, I said, and that has been true, what this money does is it frees me up to do what I'd like to do. Yes. And the only reason I talk about the money I got is that for so many creative people, there is a, a terrible disconnect between what they want to do and what they could do if they had the money. Mm -hmm. However, I have also realized, I mean, I realized it for, a, I've known this for a very long time. 
it isn't that having money enables you to to be creative because if you stop and think about it very few wealthy people people who grow <laughs> up wealthy, become famous artists famous or talented artists uh in any genre mm-hmm. for whatever reason and they, i think i mean i and when i say whatever i don't mean that it's mysterious it's not mysterious there are many good reasons why you in some way need to be tested by life before you will begin to produce useful or interesting or rich creative work and in that sense i would certainly say that my very i had a very privileged upbringing that i had to really be dragged through the mud before i found i had something of substance to offer Mm-hmm. and maybe you know maybe uh that's i i don't know whether that's uh reassuring to people who are still struggling and i'm still struggling i mean i won this prize money in you know uh 1997 <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's more than tw- it's 20 you know it's 22 years ago mm-hmm. it's certainly not you know it it just helped me get over a certain bump and it made it meant that i didn't i didn't need to be doing the really tiresome things that i used to have to do but i i am still struggling mm-hmm. i'm i'm not i i own no property i don't know how to drive i don't own you know i don't own things but you're still creating oh yes Yes. So that that is the that is the thing that is the when people ask me what do what do what will it help me do and I said it'll help me work. That is true. Mm-hmm. That's what I've done with it. Absolutely. I want to go back to something that you said. Uh you mentioned that people say you're a genius, but they didn't say that until after you wrote the play. Until mm-hmm. after you won the award. And I think that is so important. because we can't wait for someone to pronounce us a genius until mm-hmm. we start working. No one's going to yeah. do it before mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. create the play, before we write the book, before we do the thing. So we have to just get out there and do it. Mhm. And we can't get recognized until we've done it. And I it think a lot of people kind of wait and try to do that backwards, right? Well, it's it is an interesting question. What what is it that causes people to say that? um my you know i don't spend much time thinking about it uh because in a in a sense it's a, um it's a it's trivial you know it's it's not it's not it's not meaningful you might have a genius who is who doesn't ever get a chance and and dies unnoticed um and that person might might have extraordinary gifts but they never get a chance to flower and uh i i think i mean in in the crassest and most ridiculous way we can we can turn we can look at the at at what beauty contests have done with beauty we know that that the the handful of women who win beauty contests are surely not the most beautiful women in the world mm. we know that we know that in our hearts and yet they get a certain kind of attention they can monetize their beauty in a way that the the village beauty down the road cannot and 
it's there's also this issue of which part of this is right or wrong, you know? Hmm. What and, do you mean by that? I, I mean, the girl who grows up in a small village, and when at this moment we're just, we're, I'm just referencing female beauty because it's something that's very, that has been classically acknowledged in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, it's not because there aren't many kinds of beauty. Agreed. But, uh, it's something that we, you know, it's it's easy to refer to. Okay. The fact that a a, a lovely girl in in a village in Iran or in uh, South Africa or Australia or New Zealand or you know anywhere um, uh, does not get uh, the world's attention for her beauty does not mean that she is not stunningly beautiful. Mm-hmm. And yet the fact that the beauty contest winners can actually monetize their beauty creates a, an, an, a different quality to it. And unfortunately, it's a quality that we all pay attention to. Mm-hmm. If the village beauty were to be placed alongside the, the, you know, the, the glittering beauty queens on the stage, it's very unlikely that we would look, even with the best of intentions, it's very unlikely that we would look at the village girl. And it's, it, it's, it's just one of those things. I, I'm not sure why, and, and I'm not sure whether a time will come when we will absolutely reject the glittering beauty queen, who is also a human being. She has rights, yes. she, has, <laughs> she, has, you know, she has feelings. And uh, it's a hard one, mm-hmm. but and as I said, this is at 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 a level that we all consider superficial and trivial. That is the issue of good looks. But genius is not really very different. You could have someone who is extraordinarily gifted in some direction, and yet uh, without the. Um, without the confirmation from society and especially especially without the monetary investment genius is sometimes is routinely ignored mm-hmm. and set aside yeah definitely but i also would add to that the caveat that it will continue to be ignored if it's not realized in some way Yes, it's a it's a tree falling in a forest. It's yeah, a, it's the whole issue. Yeah, if the tree doesn't fall down, I mean, we shouldn't want trees to fall down. But if the tree doesn't fall down, then no one's going to hear it, whether they're there or not, right? <laughs> so, like, if your book goes unwritten, no one can like it or pan it, exactly, because they don't have so anything to talk about. For me, a very long time ago, I came to the con- came to the conclusion that rather than be uh, discouraged by the lack of support from uh, theater people in New Delhi, where I then lived, um, I should bash on regardless, as they say, and keep writing. And I think I've been born out in that because um, as a result of being um, uh, exceedingly stubborn in this way, <laughs> I, I have... Um, 
a collection of plays that, in fact, right now I'm putting together in a collection that will appear, you know, that will get published. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, so that's that's very reassuring. And, and it is especially wonderful that a play I wrote in 1984 is... Even now, of course, it's also sad that it is still so relevant. It is unfortunately even more relevant now because of this this wave, so-called wave of violence in uh, against women in India. But it's not a wave. It's there's been a kind of uh, uh, underlying um, violence against women in India for a very. It's not just India. It's as we know, it's all over the world. There's a there's a kind of undercurrent of um, violence against women that women have to uh, deal with, have to engage with in some form. Mm -hmm. Um, But ever since 2012, um, it's become a kind of epidemic in India, an epidemic of attention for a certain kind of crime. Mm -hmm. So my play, which, which was not written with the intention of making people think about rape but in fact it's a it's a the play plays the focus of the play is uh public apathy to crime mm. because the rape is merely is is the is in the background and the way the play is structured you don't of course you don't see it when i say of course i mean um i had never any intention of giving the uh, the the audience or the viewer um, the satisfaction, and I put that in quotation marks, of watching a woman being attacked. Mm-hmm. I wanted the audience to look at the reactions of the people watching the attack. Because as far as I was concerned, in what I had heard from my friend about the incident, that was much more shocking than, mm-hmm. at least you know, at one level, the response was more shocking than the act um, because the response was not, um, people were not personally threatened and yet their reactions were those who were protecting themselves against something that they could merely see. They were not, you know, see and hear. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us about a vivid memory that you have of the theater? You sort of already gave us a really good one of that moment after the first reading that you sat in mm-hmm. your show. Is there another one that comes to mind? You, you don't mean from something of mine. You mean... Any- oh, anything. It could be something of yours. It can be something that you've so seen. So I'm going... I'm go- I, I hadn't... You know, I, I saw your list and then decided that I wouldn't reread your list. Great. Because I wanted to respond fresh to whatever we said. Mm-hmm. I love it. So um, as you ask this question, I will go all the way back to when I was maybe, you know, maybe four or something, very, very young. And um, we lived in Geneva at the time. And there was uh, a performance of a very um, extraordinary and dramatic uh, dance form called Kathakali. If you want, I'll write it down for you. It's it's a dance form specific to uh, the Southern state of Kerala in India, it's a state to which I belong by ethnic origin, but I don't, I've never lived there. But it's my point of ethnic origin. And this is an extremely vivid and, um, in a theatrical sense, extremely um, uh, eye-popping 
uh, dance form in which the dancers, they're all, they're always, at least so far as I know, they're all male dancers, but they wear these really extravagant costumes with huge headdresses and they look like giants. And I was this wee little thing in the audience sitting right up front. And there was a moment in the, the because they perform mythological themes. And there was a moment in, in the show on stage where a character uh, attacks another character, stamps on him, pulls out his entrails and sucks them. <gasps> wow. <laughs> and it was... <gasps> <laughs> you can imagine. I can imagine absolutely oh my gosh as a four-year-old sitting right up front hmm. what is the most important lesson that you have learned in the theater uh, that it's uh it is one of the most interactive of arts hmm. uh because the feedback is instantaneous it's it's as the thing as your your work is being created, you're getting feedback from the audience. The audience are immediately responding. So it is, it is the most, um, uh, uh, in a sense, the scariest of the arts in that form, in that, that is the, I don't know whether to say it's the most plastic is the correct, because I think plastic now has the wrong oh. connotation. But you mean but, like like changeable, multiple? Yes, because because I re, I I suspect that I I don't perform, so I I can only say this. I have, I mean, in in school and college, but, but not in a uh, not in any real sense. Um, yeah, I I I am certain that the audience's response or lack of response feeds back to the performers, and there's this. Um, and if if you have been the source of the words uh, and the action, then if you happen to to be in the audience or in some way uh, um, uh, present, you you can sense the effect of what you have set in motion silently by yourself on your own in your in your workspace. This this private activity of writing feeds outwards and and has this completely other um life mm -hmm. and that that sense that it is um that your work is is uh so um so much of a uh um a catalyst in other people's lives um is very as i as i said earlier it's very humbling and one becomes very conscious of, of the responsibility one bears uh, while producing works of this kind. Especially if one begins to sense that one's work is actually going to be listened to, one's words are going to be acted on, uh, then the responsibility you bear for what comes out of it becomes, mm -hmm. um, in a sense, um, it goes beyond humbling. It can stop you from, from doing and saying things that you might want to do and say. Mm, interesting. You know, if, if you, if I, uh, it, as I have said, I've used the word obscure. There's a certain, um, uh, uh, 
pleasure in obscurity because you can do things quietly. <laughs> and then you know you don't get to do that in theater. <laughs> you can if you write it quietly by yourself. I guess that's true. And, and then know, never go see it. Death. After your death, they find these, you know, these fiery plays. Anyway, <laughs> the, the, the image I have had in my mind many times over, because I, I'm often slow to, to produce work, you know, and, and I have told friends that the, uh, and that is when I'm not really friends, but when, when an editor is, is impatient to get me <laughs> to finish something, and I say to them, you know, there's this big warehouse and there's this tiny little door. I am the door. And the warehouse has to put, whatever's in the warehouse has to pass through this tiny little door to come out. And, and I don't have, that's, I don't work uh, day and night. I'm not at all um, a workaholic. Mm -hmm. I, I, I routinely tell friends that I, unlike everyone else, I'm not descended from the ape. I'm descended from the sloth. <laughs> I, uh, my favorite activity is to just lie in bed and uh, you know, I, I'm slow, I'm sleepy. Uh, I produce work at, at what I consider a slow pace. But yes, when I look back, well, you know, I do a weekly column and a weekly comic strip every week. So that's got nothing to do with being inspired. It's just what I do for work. And Everything else, whether it's my drawings or my uh, other writing, it it comes in, it sort of seeps in alongside the weekly work. So uh, you could say that I'm, I mean, I appear to be productive, but I have also <laughs> lived a long time. You know, I'm 65. I've had a long time in which to do these things. It's not that, and I've been working uh, since I was, you know, just out of school, like from the time I was 17, I've been publishing work. So um, it's a long time. It's but not you didn't quit. And I think that's really important. Well, I didn't quit because I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> no that's question of quitting. There's no question of quitting. Mm -hmm. Not because I'm idealistic. I am. I, yes, I am yeah. idealistic. Yes. But if the, the not being able to quit is not because, oh, I, I, you know, I felt my soul needed to not quit. No, I had to earn a living. So there's never any question of quitting. I, at 21, I had said to my parents at 21, I'm not accepting money from you. I'm leaving home. I had already left home. I wasn't living at home. Um, and they were they were experiencing some life crises of their own. So they didn't pay attention to the, I'm not accepting money. They just thought or said, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, whenever some young person asks me for uh, life guidance, I say the first thing you can do is stop accepting money from your parents, leave mm -hmm. home. Stop accepting money. Oh, you don't have to leave home, but don't accept their money. But once your parents control you or anyone controls you, you don't have agency. If you have your own bank account, even then you don't have agency if you don't have much money in the bank account. But that's very true. <laughs> you have more than if anyone is paying for you. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I, I, 
this is usually the point at which I mentioned that I didn't do, I did a BA not in literature or in art, but in economics. Um. And I have seen the, <laughs> the result of that through my life. I'm hopeless at finance. I'm really uh, in, incompetent and inept at managing finances, but something in the theory of economics got through to me. And I recognized that whoever pays for something has power over that thing. Mm, that's powerful. So what would you say then to people who are, they have the creative drive, they're talented, they're skilled, they have everything they need to, to have in order, they have all of the, the ordinary skills that they need to do whatever it is. Um, and they feel like they're really stuck in a day job. Hmm. What would you say to someone like that? Well, this, they must realize any person, any artistic person needs to understand that they, they must support themselves, yes. But they have to feed their spirit. The spirit will not feed itself. It will not remain uh, active and lively uh, unless it, it, it's like a caged bird. If you don't let it fly if you don't let it out of the cage it will lose the ability to fly so you can't you you have to nurture your spirit and with with um, very young people who who want to start out as authors not playwrights as authors i have suggested to them that they approach their local newspaper whatever is their the smallest most basic newspaper in their locality and offer free of charge of most likely it would be free uh, to write little pieces to to get their words out in print and to see the effect of that mm. and that that is the most powerful effect a powerful um, life lesson you can learn from from being from understanding the dif- difference between being published and and being um, merely someone who writes well, mm-hmm. and of course, in today's world where there's so much that goes on in, in uh, on the internet, I'm not sure whether that kind of advice is helpful. But my intuition is that what appears on the internet is very different to what appears in print. And I would course, agree with that. The world of print is very different uh, in these days than it used to be, and the effect and the impact is very different. But I would say that that advice applies to even people who, if writing is not their goal, but the idea of taking a baby step, the mm-hmm. idea of doing the small thing first so you mm-hmm. can feel what it felt like, you get the feedback of, how how can I make this better next time? But also the sense of like seeing your name on something that yes, exists outside your brain. Your name, what seeing your name does is it makes you, it forces you to understand that you are not whoever you you are privately to yourself with your world of aunts and uncles and parents and brothers and sisters or nothing or, you know, whatever it is you have in the way of a personal family or don't have. I mean, if you're, if you grew up in an orphanage or, in some, you know, uh, home where you didn't have a personal family, whatever your personal circumstance, there is a world outside that sees you only by your name. 
understands nothing of your personal circumstance and what you bring to that piece that appears in the world is is i it can be very liberating because you can you can wear a mask but you have to also uh, like in the jim carrey movie about the mask mm -hmm. the mask also takes over your life mm -hmm. so whoever you are out there in in print and in in the larger world uh can also control you so it it, it is and it is however protected you are by it being a small newspaper or a small magazine it is an important first step to understanding the largeness of the world and the the fact that when you enter it as just that name uh, on, uh above a column of print um you're suddenly entering a very big space and and you both understand your um the the smallness of your presence and the fact that nevertheless you are there there you are <sighs> that's beautiful <clears throat> let's say that again you recognize the smallness of your presence yet nevertheless you are there yeah <sighs> i love that that is beautiful hmm. that's another thing i'm going to get tattooed on my face <laughs> <laughs> So I remember it every time I walk in, into a bathroom when I see the mirror. <laughs> I think it might be easier to just put it on the mirror. <laughs> You're probably right. But <laughs> there's, there's a point that I often make that I have not yet made, which is that being a comic strip artist has been crucial to being able to write plays. Ooh, tell us it about is, that. It is a connection that I think very few people have made. um i made it because that's been that was the um the order of events i was a cartoonist and then became felt confident enough to write a play and i believe i i cut my teeth on writing dialogue in a comic strip because a comic strip is a script you have characters they move about and you add text to them but you have actually before you draw the characters before you write the text you have imagined the little stage of the performance and and one of the first things i understood about doing a comic strip because no one was there was no one editing me my editor was the kind of person who said okay go ahead and do it and he just so he didn't he just gave me the space he told me what kind of space i had just do it and um he never in all the years that i worked for that editor he never told me to either do or not do any particular thing um so i was you could say that it was a great freedom but it also meant that there was no direction there was no sense of what works it was if it went out there and people responded then okay anyway the point is i i understood very quickly that whereas in prose you say uh emily walked across the room and gave uh mary a flower i would say that in prose in a comic strip if i have the character emily appearing and walking across the strip to give mary a flower i have wasted a lot of space and then she gives <laughs> a flower that's completely pointless <laughs> instead I have Emily and Mary both in the same first frame one 
Emily hands a flower over to Mary without saying anything about the flower. And Mary can then say, that smells nice. And we don't ever have to say the word flower because we can see it. And that's where it, that's what happens in theater. I can move the characters around with stage directions. They can then talk about something different. It's mm-hmm. a really good so, point. And that leads really nicely into the next question. Do you believe that theater should be required life curriculum? Oh, absolutely. Why? Because it forces a young, especially if it's in school or college, more school than college, it it forces, um, it. let's not say forces, it invites a young person to come out of whoever they are. And, and it seems to me in today's world, many young people grow up in families that focus so much on the individual and the individual's needs and choices. Do you really want this? Do you want this? You know, uh, to the exclusion of the outside world. And yet the, the challenges that any person faces as they come out of childhood is how to interact with that much larger world. And theater just in the, in in the 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 structure of of um, working in a play, you you have to place yourself in uh, in combination with many others. It's like a concert, like playing in a concert, but it's not it's not so rigid. It's much less rigid, and you spend much more time in the rehearsal process, um, in all the uh, ego struggles that take place in in the course of a rehearsal, and. And the um, and of course you're you're being flushed through with words that are not yours, and words are so much a part of what we use to think with. Mm-hmm. Yet because you are uh, you are pushing words that are not yours in through your system, your uh, entire mind is being um, tickled by mm-hmm. by. Uh, sounds and and resonances that are not yours. It's like and a mental colonic. <laughs> yes, yes. I would say I would say that's a great way to. <laughs> to <remember>. And I, <laughs> I, I love the uncomfortable. Word. Why yes. would? <laughs> a lot of people don't. There are a lot of people who won't do that. <laughs> but it, it helps. I mean, it can help a shy person. Um, come out of themselves it can um, it can I mean for instance if uh, uh, theater groups um, were willing to to offer transgender variations of of plays then it helps um, both young men and women to to be the other mm-hmm. and um, uh, all of that is very useful I think it helps I agree it helps uh, build empathy. Absolutely. I think what's going to stick with me is that word flush. (laughs) I'm serious though, because it's the same, whether I'm, whether I'm working on a show or in the creative process or going to see a show, Mm -hmm. it is a flush of the spirit and of the mind and of the heart. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, that's kind of a great word for catharsis probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Here's your chance to plant a seed in the hearts, minds, or spirits of everyone who's listening today. Well, you know, one of the one of the um, 
thought exercises that I tried on myself and I work with from many years ago, from the time I was very young, was to use the word everyone. When I used the when I used the word everyone, I trained myself at a very early age to see a kind of uh, a representation of many different tribes and cultures. So to use the word everyone to actually try and mean 8 billion people. And it, it, if, you, if you use it that way, then you can see that you can't, there are very few things that will actually apply to everyone. And it's, it's just a way of stretching one's awareness. Yeah, and of speaking more truthfully. Exactly. Carefully, yes. I like how you did this. You did a spreading motion with your fingers and I instantly saw like a string of of paper dolls. But I saw them in all different colors, each one different and all in different colors and all in different shapes. And and that is, I'm going to keep that image now. Every time I say the word everyone, I'm just going to imagine the string of paper dolls. (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. (laughs) <laughs> be awesome. Okay. If someone who's listening wants to hire you, they want to commission a work, they want to produce one of your works, they want to read your comic strip, what is the easiest way for them to find you? To connect on Facebook. And I will add it to the show notes so people can find okay. you. Wonderful. Well, this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you, thank you yes, for sharing yes. your time and your energy and your experience and all of these beautiful, courageous thoughts that you have. I'm really excited to be able to share them. Thank you, Emily, so for, for being interested. It's my pleasure. That is all for today. Remember to hit that subscribe button, leave us a rating and tell your friends to subscribe too, so that they can also change their life through the inner collective wisdom of Women Pleasant Theater. Really quick, I am setting up some live events for the next year or so. You can find details at my website, emilystamets.com. I know I'm planning to come to Atlanta in January and I will be setting up something here uh, near where I live in San Diego in like late October, early November, most likely. If you would like me to come to your area with an event or you are would like to collaborate on an event or you would like to know more about an event, please email me at events at emilystamets.com. You can follow this podcast on social media at FYL podcast or find your light podcast if you're on Facebook and reach out anytime with comments and suggestions at podcast at emilystamets.com. All right, until next time, stand confidently center stage and enjoy your show.